Welcome to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. We're talking for the second time on this show about campaign finance reform, which is a subject close to my heart. As anyone listening probably already knows, money limits who can run for office. Then once the election is over, money influences what the winner does. In other words, if Corporation X gives a huge amount of money to a congressperson, that person will tend to keep that Corporation X in mind when writing or voting on legislation. There's a word for that. The word is corruption. In this podcast, John Pudner talks about the costs of that corruption and what can be done about it. He's founder and director of a nonprofit called Take Back Our Republic, and they're doing some pretty cool stuff, like showing candidates how to win with a whole lot less money, for one thing. And they're showing me what progressives and conservatives have in common for another. You'll have to listen to find out more about that. I will give you a hint. Uh, Pudner has shut down a bunch of potential Walmarts because they were going to hurt local businesses. Welcome, John Pudner, to Radioactivism. Thank you. So how did you get interested in this whole question of reforming campaign finance, money and politics? What are the problems that you were observing? Uh, I ran campaigns for about 20 years, and the dependency on money and attention to money uh, became a bigger and bigger issue, to a point at which we weren't even looking for candidates anymore that were uh, excellent articulating positions and solving problems and things we were looking for 20 years ago. It was all, can this candidate self-fund, or are they willing to be a telemarketer and spend all their time raising money? And that was just unhealthy, and I thought I had to come outside the system to fix it. And it's an amazing thing that happens in Washington. And as you say, it's a fairly recent phenomenon the last 20 years where candidates, when they uh, achieve, when they win, they go into office and they spend so much of their time not governing, but fundraising. Well, you think you spend a uh, you send a member of Congress from here to represent you and their normal daily routine is an intern walks over from whichever party's office and tells them they need to go over and have their call time, which means sitting there for hours calling donors, usually not in the state, so these aren't even constituents, and that's what your typical member's day is. You elect them to go be a fundraiser. So many Democrats, liberals, citizens in our country are against the current system because it seems to give wealthy interests an advantage over, say, the poor, the environment, things like that. You're working from a conservative perspective. What kinds of attitudes toward campaign finance are you seeing from grassroots conservative citizens, from working class people like in Alabama, where you're from? It's been good. I think you pointed out the problem very well, though. Initially, I think a lot of conservatives just knew it was a bad system, but said, we think this works in our advantage, so we're going to be for this system. I think uh, a good wake-up call was that Liberals can figure out how to raise money, too. I mean, President Obama certainly showed he could. Hillary Clinton showed she did all the way down. And I think that was good to have a billion-dollar Democratic presidential campaign to go back to conservatives with and say, hey, both sides can play this game. You know the system's bad. You you know we need to fix it. And uh, I think that was a wake-up call. But also, remember, most races are won at the primary level now. It's not a Republican versus Democrat. It's within your party because of redistricting and other factors. So, so many grassroots conservatives had seen their candidates get destroyed by money in a primary because they weren't the big money candidate. And that's what happened was a neat underlying theme that people didn't see in public, what was conservatives within primaries getting upset and wanting changes. And that's something that you've actually worked on. I mean, you've done some seriously David and Goliath kinds of campaigns where you had the person who was the underdog had less money, but you still found ways for them to win. I did. I used to in my campaign days, and I gave up all campaigning two years ago to do this, so I do just want to be very, <laughs> state that right up front. I don't run campaigns anymore. I used to tell people, you can find someone with a better winning percentage than me. You will not find anyone who won more races when being outspent more than three to one. There's a grassroots way to win campaigns. It can be door-to-door in a more urban, suburban area. It can be working events in a rural area, but also so you have to be data-driven. And so many grassroots candidates that much money don't get that. They either hate the data or the other way around. You have kind of young techies who hate the old door-to-door. And if you just do those both, you can overcome money. So we had a bunch of races like that. We won just legislative races. And um, these were all for Republicans. And then Dave Bratt, 
uh, recruited him, and he defeated Eric Canner, and that was the one race where we'd only raised eighteen thousand dollars through a few months to to overcome five million, and did so. So that was kind of the final one, and I felt like at that point. I don't think we can repeat that that much unless we change the system. So I kind of went out on that race. So even though you have shown that you can win races with far less money, you still think it's an important thing to get more money out of politics. It is. Uh, uh, you know, look at what an exception that race was even in 2014. I mean, as soon as we won, everyone said, oh, all these Tea Party candidates are going to win Republican primaries now. None of them won. I mean, every incumbent won. This year, no no incumbent lost. Um, we are actually putting together a people-powered playbook that we'll be putting out in a few months, which shows people from any ideological uh, perception how to win a race. We're trying to encapsulize that race. We're talking about how you can use data targeting very inexpensively. All the things can consultants want to charge you a ton to do so they can make money we're going to put it out there and it's going to be an open source so anyone can use it as a nonprofit, we can do that now i can't write a book and go back and say hey republican party i'm writing you a book on how to win that's you know we cannot do partisan politics we cannot try to elect someone there but what we are allowed to do is an open source that anyone can access and what we really want is candidates not to be dependent on the big money to stop spending 85 percent of their time raising money and start doing things that make them better representatives. When you talk to business owners, and we're not talking now about Exxon and Monsanto, but talking about small and medium-sized business owners, maybe family business owners, or, or, or larger than that, but still, you know, at a state level, regional level, what are they saying? Yeah, the, uh, sometimes there's some hesitancy at first. They think of campaign finance reform as a progressive issue. So there's usually a little initial language obstacle. But as soon as I talk picking winners and losers, they get it immediately. I mean, the idea that procurements are done based on campaign contributions, that someone from out of state is getting a deal with taxpayer money because they were making political contributions and they aren't giving the state the best deal. Um, that's where you really get them. One thing I saved in back my campaign days, I tell people, look, the Chamber of Commerce and Walmart are not your friend. They're the friend of whoever just won the last election. <laughs> you know, you're, even within the Republican circles, NFIB, your small business owner, I mean, they were the ones who were really the, you know, the bloodline to a lot of these races. And for that matter, for years, even though I was doing conservative politics, I was fighting Walmarts too. I, I killed a dozen Walmarts just by rallying communities against them and saying, look, once they come in, they kill off all your local businesses. And I think that was a perfect uh, prelude, if if you will, to campaign finance reform. It was money affecting political decisions that ultimately would hurt the community. It really also blurs the line between liberal and conservative. I mean, I sometimes think that those words are becoming outdated because the concerns of real people on the ground, working class people, working people who are not million and billionaires, have a lot more in common than they have different. Absolutely. I think the battles between transactional givers and ideological givers, even among your contributors, before we even get to voters. Yeah, there are people who, it, rich people, who give plenty of money because they want a more progressive government or a more conservative government. I really don't have that much problem there. If that's all we were talking about, maybe I wouldn't think this was top priority. The problem is so much of it is transactional now. There's a spreadsheet where people are saying, uh, the best return I can get in business right now is political contributions that lead to me getting a bunch of taxpayer money or tax breaks, or depending on what your business is. And, and that's the problem. It's giving away our tax money to the highest bidder uh, and having them make 20 bucks off the one they put in the political campaigns. Now, in New Mexico, we call that pay to play. Yes. Uh, and it could be anything from people who make asphalt and then get the contract to build the roads. It could be private prison. It could be a business like a Walmart that wants to move into a community. All of those things, they consider a political contribution. They consider it an investment, essentially, a business investment. You've got it right on. Um, we just ran a referenda to change campaign finance laws in South Dakota. And the Koch brothers were our main opponent in that. Um, they wanted to keep a system there where you didn't even have to report any gifts or campaign contributions. I remember I said gifts included. Uh, you can buy a legislator a car and not tell anyone and have legislation in front of them or be bidding. And they tried to say that some of the aspects we had, like a $60 voucher to let everyone contribute to a political campaign, were taking money from individuals and giving them to politicians. What I had to point out is the Koch brothers had 10 asphalt plants, to use your case study, 
surrounding the state of South Dakota. None of them actually in South Dakota, so these weren't even South Dakota businesses, but 10 of the 14 asphalt plants they had in the country surrounded that state. Well, they're in bidding on $300 million in, in road deals. Now, you don't think more money's lost by a political donor being paid a premium <laughs> as opposed to someone in South Dakota doing the work. And so that's the kind of thing we have to hit. You're absolutely right. This is such a money saver if we fix this system. It's not only a money saver, which it is. It's not only an avoider of corruption, which it is. But it's also an opportunity for the best bidder to actually be chosen to do the job. And given the great variety of competence from highly competent to totally incompetent, that really makes a difference. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I'd basically say a tie should go to the in-state bidder. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying the in-state bidder should get everything, but, you know, an in-state uh, entity that's already paying taxes should certainly have some preference in a close call on a bid, I would say. And let me tell you something. If, if there aren't limits on campaign contributions one day in New Mexico, let's just say they were done away with, do you think any New Mexican businesses are outbidding any of the big out-of-state ones coming in? So, no, you're absolutely right. And often the in-state uh, person does know the state better. I mean, there may be aspects of the terrain, the, the beautiful <laughs> terrain I'm looking at here, the geography, that an in-state person just knows and gets. We lost a, um, one case to Walmart in Pennsylvania where our local were insisting they could not build on this one ridge. They insisted they could. The ridge collapsed, shut down a state road for almost a year. They're still fixing it. I think this is 10 years later. As an example, they just they brought in out-of-state people. And that's not quite a campaign finance issue, but you can see how it's similar. They just overrode the locals with money, and you don't want that. Tell us a little bit about what happened in South Dakota, because that was a really interesting example in very much of a red state. It was. Uh, I think one reason we really wanted to get involved there was it was a red state. And basically, the, uh, the people defending the current law, which I just consider a very corrupt law, uh, were trying to stop change. And their argument was, a bunch of out-of-state liberals want to change our law. This is how we do things in South Dakota. So I went into the state and made one very straight-on analogy at the beginning. I said, look, anyone in this state voting for Donald Trump should be voting for this law. Trump says he wants to clean up the system. He says everything's rigged. Um, this is the most rigged state there is. And ended up with a headline literally an hour after setting foot in South Dakota that said, uh, uh, Trump uh, Trump supporters should back IM-22, <laughs> which sent the Republican Party there crazy. I mean, they came out against it. Koch brothers spent, again, dropped 600000 against us at the end. But we just made the case. You know, take away everything else you care about the presidential election. Th this and Bernie Sanders and others are being driven by there's a corrupt system that has to be fixed. And so for us, it was very significant to go into a red state and say, look, I don't care how you red your state is. This is no longer just a progressive issue. We we may have slightly different solutions, but the issue itself is affecting everyone. But what was the solution they actually came up with? Uh, we had a pretty hard-hitting solution. <laughs> I think if they'd bargained with us a little, they might have gotten a better deal. Uh, we ended up with $500 campaign limits. I would not have been that as aggressive, um, but going from unlimited to we're not budging to, okay, how about 500 <laughs> You know, that's a tough one for them. Full disclosure, if you give, it's going to be reported. And if Koch brothers want to give a bunch of money and then bid for a road contract and they win it because they're the best bidder, that's fine. But let's at least have the voter know, hey, my representative who just voted to give them this, this big procurement also received a bunch of money from them. And I'm just using them as an example. It could be someone on the left, Tom Steyer, whoever. But full disclosure, and everyone gets a $60 voucher, which they can use if they want on a campaign. I will say that from a conservative perspective, we prefer tax credits when we can have them, giving everyone the ability to give up to $200 and get it back on their taxes. South Dakota does not have an income tax, so we were happy to go along with the voucher in that case. But the important thing is giving local people who've given up on the system some ability to contribute, because once they contribute, they pay attention. So that is what happened in South Dakota, and this idea of the voucher is very interesting because it's basically it's taxpayer money that the taxpayer can choose to use or not choose and then give to a political candidate of their choice? Th that's right. Now, our fir again, that's our second choice, and a lot of more progressive groups would prefer that. Our preference is what they do in Virginia and Ohio and Oregon, 
where you have a tax credit. So you actually have to fill out your tax form and say, I gave up to, it's just $50 in those states, but I gave $50 or I gave five candidates $10, and then I claim it back in my taxes and get it back. So we'd prefer that because for us, from a conservative perspective, that is the money I was going to give the IRS if you did this at the federal level, I'm instead choosing a candidate I agree with. Uh, the voucher system is a little more aggressive because everyone gets it. So obviously some progressive groups prefer that. But yes, you are mailing it to everyone. So the issue there is public financing's trickier, not as popular. I have some issues with it as a first choice, just that you're, you are printing extra money, if you will. But it does, if you can get rid of corruption, in the end, you can save so much money on it. Uh, in South Dakota, uh, there was a study that showed that if the state only had the average level of corruption, the average citizen would save 1300 a year. And I believe that that's probably figures very close here because I know New Mexico is rated as one of the most corrupt states. So you're probably in that ballpark. You can save 1000 bucks each just doing these kind of things to fix the system. And, of course, the advantage of the voucher system is that there are a lot of people in New Mexico and in South Dakota who can't afford $60. That's right. That's right. And I think when you have, what is it, 800,000 here out of 2.1 million qualify for Medicaid, I think. I mean, some of the stats, certainly, I realize looking at those numbers. So th those are valid arguments for them. We still prefer a tax credit, but I readily admit there's some very good arguments on the other side. So what are some other ways that you deal with transact what's called transactional giving pay to play that kind of thing well i think we just have to try to get rid of dark money i prefer to call it secret money because everyone gets what that is some of the loopholes that are being used now to get money in that's never disclosed are a huge problem uh setting up llc's in certain states so that you that have the sole purpose of moving political money in without disclosure um, this is an llc that you set up to do business or run your show or whatever this is i set up an llc because i want to sneak money into in, into new mexico and i don't want anyone to know i'm giving because i have a vested interest so Disclosure is so key for us. We have to have disclosure. Yeah, I really hope the, the government here, legislature, governor, are all ready to move forward on it. We've got to at least know. At least once you know what's who's giving, you can make decisions on it. That cleans up a lot of it. Now, when you have disclosure, let's say a contractor gives a large contribution to a campaign, then the contractor gets the contract, and there's full disclosure, and we know it, but it's still pay-to-play. It is. It doesn't solve the problem, but I guess what I'm saying is, uh, well, for example, government contractors funnel their money through the Chamber of Commerce, and then they bid on government contracts. So you now have $147 billion going to a couple of dozen different companies. <laughs> now, I'm sure some of that's legitimate. They're the only one that can build something. But they're hiding all their political contributions. We ironically took people from several states to the White House to ask President Obama, I mean, just a protest out front, we didn't talk to him, ask him to sign executive orders saying that if you are getting government contracts, you have to disclose all your political giving. You can't hide it through these third parties. And he never signed it. That was a little frustration for us because, you know, he seemed very active with uh, executive orders. So we're hoping that can be accomplished, and, and that should be done in every state. I think anyone who's giving money and then getting it back, at least let us know it. That's the first step. You're right, it doesn't clean up all pay-for-play, but at least if there's the possibility for someone with a good political mind to make that a campaign issue, you at least have a chance to start to fight that and, and make it stop. Now, does that have to be done state by state, or is there a federal solution? I mean, you just said this executive order that wasn't signed. Yes. Well, that would deal with just federal contracts. So, I mean, that would only address the federal side. Um, and I don't know the, the uh, New Mexico code well enough to know the law here, but every state has different laws. Some do have full disclosure, so you do know this. Oh, so of course. Okay, got it. So that for federal races, you've got federal laws. For state races, you have state right. laws. That's right. So another idea that you are working with is raising the individual level for anonymous, in other words, undisclosed, unreported contributions. Now, that's sort of the opposite of what we've just been talking oh. about. Yeah, let me clarify. that. That's actually not what we're trying to do. Um, what we have said is, if there were a package deal that would disclose all money so we knew where it was coming from, we'd be open to, as part of a deal, up the limit on what you give directly to a member of Congress. See, the problem right now is some of these races, like the Republican primaries early on, 85% of the spending was through third parties. Only 15% was the candidates. So what we've said is we're not out there trying to up limits at all, but what we're saying is right now, 
if a member goes to someone, they say, I want to give you $100,000 for a congressional race. What do you say? You say, well, you can give 2700 to me. That's the limit. But my friend Jim down the hall runs a super PAC with different rules. Talk to him. So you go give 100000 to him, and it's all used for you. That's the worst possible system. So we're And not, that's the system we have. That's the system we have. So all we're saying is, one, I'd say more in a baby step is, if they would make all those super PACs and LLCs and everyone play under the same rules as the direct giving, I'd be okay with in a trade-off, upping that 2700 for the direct giving. Because the reason campaigns are so negative now is no one's name is on the commercials. And when I sit down with a candidate and we wanted to go after an opponent, it can be perfectly legitimate. But when my candidate's name and picture had to be on that commercial, you better believe we had our facts straight. Now, no one cares. Now, if I walked in here tomorrow and formed people who love New Mexico, even though I don't live here, and started running commercials, I wouldn't care if people hated my group. You know, I could make things up. I mean, if I'm unethical here, I, I'd start accusing people of things. There's no accountability. If your opponent has to do it, that's a much better system, and that's where we used to be. Like, I'm so-and-so, and I approve this message. Yes, make them do that every time. But there was also something that I thought I read in your literature about people who wanted to give up to a much smaller amount, like in the few hundreds of dollars, oh. who didn't want to have their names on it because they were afraid of retaliation. I don't know how common retaliation yes. is or what it looks like. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I see. Uh, yes, that is a valid point. What we have talked about is I, I think you could go higher than the $200 before you have to disclose. I don't think anyone's buying an elected official for $500. You know? And there are some people who really don't have that much money, but they can occasionally give a couple, few hundred dollars. We want to encourage that. We want to encourage more small donors. We're open to them not having to report until, say, they go to $501. The retribution, th there are some cases where people do get targeted. They're on a campaign finance list, and here they've given their first check of $250, and they get on a list, or they have a little business, and people are saying, no one shop there, no one do this. Uh, you know, that's a bit of a side issue. It's not one of our central issues, but we're open to the disclosure level being a little higher than $200. But we want full disclosure, certainly beyond 1000 maybe beyond 500 You know, we certainly want full disclosure there. Because that's, I mean, at a lower level, if I give $200 or $500 to somebody's campaign, it means I support your ideas. If I give $10,000, it means I support your ideas and I want something back. Absolutely. I saw Ben Carson. I ran into him at something two months after we started his group. And I started a sentence to him. I said, Dr. Carson, we've got to find ways to encourage higher participation and more small donors. And he finished my sentence. He said, because unlike the big donors, they don't expect anything in return. <laughs> and so we're on the same wavelength on that moment, at least. It's interesting because there's always a bit of a trade-off between privacy on the one hand and transparency on the other. That's right. And, and that's why we do talk about retribution. You know, we've talked about, in addition to wanting full disclosure, can we craft a, a anti-retribution bill that maybe says you can't get fired for a political contribution? I mean, we're exploring some things like that that lawyers think could be passed because what we don't want is, you know, some boss is for one candidate, six of the employees are for another one, and suddenly they say, hey, look, <laughs> I saw you gave a check. Yeah, you know, this is bad. This is bad for our business. Yeah, they start pressuring them, and that's what we don't want. And you've seen that. Yes, I certainly think that happens. I think there's a chilling effect, and then that person stops becoming a donor like, well, gosh, I don't want any trouble. I mean, I was just trying to give to someone I liked. Right. One of the things you talked about before was um, having a tax credit for donations. Or as in South Dakota, as we talked about vouchers for donations. Okay. Are we talking about up to, like, uh, those smaller donors? Oh, yes. Just $200 total for a okay. person. I mean, you could give 20 candidates $10 each if you wanted. But 200 is all you get a tax credit on. Okay. Because otherwise, yes. you'd have tax-deductible corruption. Yes, that's correct. Um, this is one thing that really bugged me. I first floated this idea, and they said, oh, well, that might take Congress 10, 20 years to do. And a few weeks after that, there was an article run by the New York Times where Congress stayed in session until 2 a.m. to pass something to make it absolutely clear that the billionaires who gave to super PACs and other things would not have to pay a tax on that money. It could not be considered gift and a gift tax. I'm like, well, that took one day to protect billionaires, and you're telling me it's going to take 10 years to protect the $200 donor? Right. So, yeah, I, I think this would be a really encouraging move. What is your perception 
of how people who are in office, I mean, like, how is it in their interest to vote to protect billionaires? I mean, yeah, we've got the system we've got, but presumably at least some of those people, and I would imagine or hope the majority of them, actually would kind of like to govern and not just fundraise all day. I think we're getting there. I think the initial human nature that you always see is if someone's been successful in a certain system, they tend to like that system to stay in place, <laughs> whether it's politics or something else. But I think you're right, and that's another reason the trade-off I alluded to, and if you could up that 2700 we started getting some uh, progress on that among some officials who thought they were against any reform, started going, oh, wait, you mean I'd actually have something to do with my own campaign again? Because <laughs> right now they're being sold like a can of Coke and Pepsi. You know, yeah. it's a third party selling and they're getting you through or not. You're completely dependent on them. So, yeah, we'd like to have them be part of the campaign, we'd like the giving to go that way. We And at that point, they started to realize, oh, maybe this current system isn't as good as I thought. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, the the guy who rolled in here and mentioned he had a 10, $10 million super PAC and, you know, would really like you to vote for something, you stop having to be threatened by that guy and go, oh, gosh, I'm going to have $3 million, making sure my whole family knows I'm a scumbag and I've got to raise 2700 at a time to try to combat it. So we hope to get there. You're absolutely right. I just think it's it's that initial hurdle of I've wanted this system. Why would I want it to change? Right, right. But I mean, it's like, I was just thinking the other day, I mean, you know, high schoolers, they all have, like, they have their debate teams. Right. And it would be so interesting to have like the whole country debating the question, is the United States a democracy? Right. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Right. And in the ways that you're talking about when a candidate or an official, a congressman, congresswoman, is more beholden to the biggest donor to a super PAC than to his or her thousands of or millions of constituents. Absolutely. Not a democracy. Absolutely. And you can even sub the word republic for some, you know, a actual representative republic where the constituents are the person they're taking direction from. Yeah. Uh, so whether you talk pure democracy, republic, but you're absolutely right. And, and remember, these donors aren't usually here. That's why I keep trying to stress to people. I mean, unless you're representing Manhattan or something, <laughs> you're not calling constituents for the big money. So your constituency becomes people in Manhattan or somewhere else who fund your whole campaign. And so they have a lot of, a lot of members of Congress now <laughs> as representatives. You're absolutely right. I'll tell you a quick one. There was a, and this, there was actually a uh, Democrat kind of day for new candidates, but it's the same as Republican. This would happen to be Democrat. A Democrat member of Congress told me about him from out west. And they found out last minute the media was going to be allowed in. And so the media went in, and part of the notebook that each new candidate had was you need to spend 50% of your time raising money. Well, the media went crazy over this. Isn't this terrible? You know, why would these people have to spend 50% raising money instead of doing other things like talking to their constituents, solving problems? Well, this member told me the funny thing was when they found out the media was coming, they took out the page because it had said 85% of your time should be spent raising money, and the media never even saw that. But that's it in both parties. When I started running it, you spent about a third of your time raising money, a third of it solving problems, a third of it talking to constituents, whether it was going to events or talking on the phone. or It was a third, a third, and a third. And I'm okay with that. I, mean, I understand raising money can be a piece of it. I don't have a problem with that. But to go from that to 85% raising money, there's no time left to solve problems or to know what anyone back home is thinking. It also really changes who you are because you're, I mean, who you are, so much of that is your loyalties and your culture, the people you're actually spending time with on a given day. A absolutely. You know, we had uh, Virginia, Alabama, New York had something interesting. They're three very different states. All interesting because they basically all had the top official from each party get convicted <laughs> at a similar time. So this isn't a partisan thing. New York had both the Democrat speaker and House Senate leader convicted on money issues. Virginia had governor, I shouldn't say uh, convicted in every case, the last Republican governor got convicted. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court ended up throwing up, out the sentence, but it went that far. And then it was announced that the current Democratic governor was under FBI investigation on money issues. Alabama, speaker convicted um, to years in jail, and the last Democrat, Republicans, the last Democratic governor still in jail. So these things are happening no matter how different the states are. And the thing is, I knew a couple of those people when they went in. I knew the Republican governor, and I knew the uh, Republican speaker in Alabama. 
they were both good. I'm going to come in. I'm going to fix things. I'm going to get things done. And the pressure to raise money every day of your life, you could just see the change over time. And I'm not passing judgment on whether or not the convictions are right or not right. The point is they were locked into nothing but asking for money, and it just kills your, your character long term. Yeah, yeah. It would be so interesting, and I'm sure you've thought about this more than most people, to imagine and sort of project forward, let's say that your group and the other groups that were responsible for really trying to get money out of politics, you know, a real bipartisan, multipartisan coalition of people who have the same interest in getting money out of politics and actually restoring a, a democracy or a democratic republic, as you say, it would be so interesting to see what people started really fighting over then. Yes good point. Well, we see it every time a new party takes over a legislature. Suddenly they start killing each other <laughs> within the party because they have power now. So you're right. Um, but like, I, what are the real issues? Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. What could you get to? I mean, if you aren't just trading off, you know, a road contract to a political donor, how do you best fix the roads here? <laughs> you know, what do, do the bridges, uh, are they suddenly in repair? Are they, you know, even addressing the non-ideological issues that you could do if you don't have that taint of money dominating everything? You're right. There'd be a lot of things would be fixed. Very interesting. We're talking to John Pudner. He is the founder and executive director of Take Back Our Republic. Now, another thing that you are looking at is the influence of foreign money in elections, which is, let's just say right now, it's completely illegal. Right. It happens anyway, as we saw in this last national election. It happens in lots of different ways. What does it actually look like? What are your ideas for dealing with it? Well, it's twofold. One, this is one problem with allowing secret money. <laughs> if if someone's hiding money through an LLC, you don't know where that person's from or where that entity's from. So that can be overseas just as easily as anywhere else. Clearly, there are people overseas who care about the results of our elections. I don't think I have to convince anyone of that in light of the recent conversations, whether it be Russian hacking or anything else. The second one that people overlook is this practice of allowing unverified credit card contributions. Now, this sounds like a small issue at first because we're talking 200 and other, under donations. But in 2008, a practice started in which candidates started telling their bank, don't verify credit card information coming in. Don't normally a bank will match your credit card information against what they have on file. It's just an instant check. They don't even retain it. But what they want to say is, hey, wait, um, this this check, this address does not match. So if you try to order something online, we've all done it. Type a zip code number wrong. You get a red box. Oh, shoot, that was a one, not a two, and you're done. Now, obviously, if someone stolen your credit card, the point is they may not know some of this information. They may not actually know your address. Uh, so, so this is just a safeguard the banks put in. So in 2008, candidates started realizing you don't have to do that. You can go to the bank and opt out. You have to opt out. The banks don't like to not check this. They want to. So candidates started going to uh, them and saying, go unverified. We've now got about 100 members of Congress who are using unverified systems. The problem with that is anyone who wants can load up a gift card. They can run new names through uh, one after another, $200 at a time, because there's no disclosure requirement, and it's not verified, and it's the old modern bags of money. And at first, when I started talking about this a year and a half ago, people were saying, oh, you're crazy, you're conspiracy theorists, who's doing this? Again, we have foreign entities hacking into our election systems. You don't think they're sitting there and they've got $50 million to play with, they aren't going to just scoot them in? Never detected. No one would detect it in a big campaign. No one would even know it was happening. So they go to a pack that's hitting someone they don't like. It's so easy to do. So we have a simple bill, H.R. 4177, that we put through this, just a two-page bill saying, you have to allow banks to do their normal verification. You just have to let them check. Now, I wanted to say it's 100 candidates first because this is a little politically loaded because President Obama's campaign was the first one to do it. So I went and met with the person who set it up with them. And I said, look, I don't want this to be a partisan attack. It's just you all did that, I know, for different reasons. But now everyone's figured out you can do it. And uh, obviously people are taking advantage now. And she explained it to me. Uh, 
uh, lady, Carol Davidson, out of New York, who set up. She said, yeah, the reason we set up is we were going out to fairs, you know, signing, had credit cards on a piece of paper. Something was getting smudged, and we were losing some contributions. And I said, so, so I just want to be clear, this was done for perfectly legitimate purposes. The problem is once a system like that is set up and everyone starts catching on to it, not just the candidates, but people who want to manipulate the system, we just have a wide-open door right now. And she was fine. The one who set it up said, I get it completely what you're doing. I can see I'm sure this is being abused after seven years. Do you have any evidence that it's being abused in the way that you're saying? Or, I mean, maybe the whole point is that it's impossible to find that evidence? That really is the point. And I'd almost say the same thing on, have you found the Russian hacker yet who got into DNC and gave a... You never can. I mean, th this is the problem. Once you set up this electronic system that you can do from anywhere, as long as you can hide the IP address you're working from, we'll never catch them. So I'm just pass the two-page law. And for anyone who says none of this is happening, I say, great. Then this two-page law... There's no harm to it at all. You can stop any conspiracy thought. And I'm not saying conspiracy. I just think it's people overseas who want elections to go a certain way are going to use it. I mean, whatever law you pass, there's always going to be another person trying to find a loophole. You know, right. there's and there's been so many loopholes so big, like in Citizens United, that you could drive a set of trucks through them. You can. But this one... This was even in the first year, half a billion dollars came through an unverified credit card contributions to, just think of that figure, came through this way. I'm sure it's more than that now. So you close that door. I, I, my analogy is you're closing uh, doors to your house. Hey, this back door, the burglar keeps coming in the back door, let's lock it. Yeah, may try to climb in the window next. Okay, let's look at LLCs where foreign money can be put through. Yeah, there definitely are other doors to be closed. I don't want to pretend this solves all foreign money, but we're just inviting it in right now. So that credit card verification would verify that that person has a zip code in the United States, basically? Yes, there is a little extra step that we've taken for someone who's a foreign national, and I don't want to have too much time here. In general, it just verifies, yes, this is an American address. If that happens, nothing else has to happen. This is the bank has this. On, it's a real person who lives in the U.S., et cetera. Bingo, that's done. I mean, that wouldn't even stop if someone wasn't really a citizen or didn't even have a green card. They could still pass that step, you know, if they were at least local, had a local address. But it cuts off someone sitting overseas and just faking addresses all the way through. Right. Uh, it gets a little complicated with an expat working over state. But Staples, some of the people who set up Staples system have said there is a way to do that. They just would have to add a little extra information. I want to ask you how the reforms that we're talking about would be implemented on a national level I mean we're ta we're talking we're talking both right we're talking national level state level absolutely both i you know we and local even beyond state uh, sometimes local referendum i i mean one passed in seattle that we were not involved with but seeing a bunch of local referendum suddenly starts to give people in the state a gauge for, wow, people wanted some reform here. So even if you can pass something for a city or at a local level, and the nice thing is that can sometimes be voter-initiated to work around the politicians who want to protect their system. So a lot of this can bubble up from the bottom. And even on the congressional bill we had in, we called people in the states first so that by the time we got to congressional office, they had heard from people back at home, hey, I just joined this group, take back our republic. And we in particular targeted conservatives. We wanted conservatives calling conservative members saying, hey, I joined this group. We want campaign finance reform. Because it's one thing for someone who's protested five times on five different things you did to say, now I want campaign finance. It's something to say, oh, well, uh, Jim, you've been with me on all my races and you want this thing? You know, I, I think it started to get some attention. That's why we got 51 Republican uh, co-sponsors. 50 of them were sponsoring their first piece of campaign finance reform ever. <laughs> and, and we've had 30-some Democrats, and we're starting to get a bunch of them, too. So it's a very good bipartisan bill, I think. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's this question... You know, to go back to the question of foreign money in elections, I mean, that's illegal. But then there's other sort of analogous questions like out-of-state money in state elections, out-of-city money in municipal elections. Are you looking at that? Are there ways to deal with that? We've looked at it. It's definitely harder to deal with. Let me at least say that. Um, yeah, the, we are at least with foreign money talking about something that is illegal. We're just trying to figure out how to enforce it and get laws that help us. One possible solution is that you at least help empower people if they're giving to a race they can vote in. Had an interesting experience. I was speaking to the Georgia Tea Party. I mean, you don't get much further right than this group. <laughs> and uh, I used the example of the tax credit, and they all really liked it. And then one member raised their hand and said, 
Yeah, but even if everyone in this room gave money, I mean, we're going to be overwhelmed by chamber money in a in a primary or something. And I said, you are. I said, now, what some people proposed is if you're giving to a race in which you can vote, your money is also matched. So you're not only incentive to give a little check, but it's it's maybe your $200 turns into 1000 or something. Most of that room nodded their head and said, yes, this is a Tea Party group. I'd say 80% of the room thought that would be great. Yeah, so I think there's some openness to discussion on empowering, maybe amplifying is the right word, that local check. I don't think there's any way to stop any outside money from coming in. And that's the one warning I thought to officials here. If you start talking about taking limits off of contributions, that money's not coming from people in New Mexico. What you have then is you're going to have a bidding war for any business in New Mexico, and it's going to be out-of-state mega donors. So at least don't do that where it's not uh, you know, completely no limit, no limits on money. Boy, then you're inviting that money in from out-of-state. So when you were talking a moment ago about the Georgia Tea Party, and you said, okay, you give $200, but that dollar, the that money could be matched. Explain what you mean by that. Sure. This is just at the concept stage, but some places, I mean, New York City and others, have said if you enter an agreement that you want matching funds, then every time someone who could vote for you gives you a check, that check is matched. Now, there's a trade-off. If you take that deal, I think there it's huge. It's six or seven times match. So I can vote for you. I give you 100 bucks. Hey, you get another $700. And that's taxpayer money. That is taxpayer money. So that's the tricky part because me and most conservatives initially, we just talk public financing, we get a little queasy, (laughs) you know, uh, but at least that gives some self-direction to it. It is a local voter giving a check as opposed to kind of a big pool of money that's being printed, if you will, as extra money. The idea of a match being tied to a resident voting is at least, I think, a palatable discussion, even for conservatives, that we should explore. Well, it's basically a way to have a greater local voice and compete with those very out-of-state dollars that you say it's hard to yes. keep out, or out-of-city dollars it's hard to keep out of elections. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned earlier getting money out of politics. And I'd say we don't even go that far for us, we want to balance money in politics. We think this whole system was setting up a balancing. You know, I don't know. I guess theoretically, if just as much money was given, but suddenly 40% of it were coming from local citizens, I wouldn't have a big issue with that. Uh, you know, I'm not so much get rid of all money. There's going to be money there. We just have a seesaw that's so imbalanced now, as you said. You know, it's 57 billionaires. It's some huge corporations, huge unions, too. And they are so much of the picture now that your individual donor feels irrelevant. They don't give any more. And so we just need to move strongly to balance that out. I have to say, you sound like a progressive. <laughs> I always get nervous when that comes. <laughs> no, I mean, well, and, and you talk about like in your, in you know, in, in your work, you talk about conservative solutions. I mean, how are these solutions conservative? Well, I think, for example, our strong preference for a tax credit is definitely a conservative approach. A lot of the more progressive groups you know, want public financing, let's say. We're very uneasy with public financing. As I said, I think there's some discussion points when you talk match and all, but that would be a case where, I mean, I've had progressive groups come to me and say, hey, if you would just make that tax credit refundable, we'd be all over it. You know, if everyone could do it, and I'm uneasy with that. For me, there's the, you're printing money if you do that, and that's a much tougher discussion. So I'd say that that's one way. But just, you know, anything that's market-based that talks about balance, um, I want to get to a point where progressives and conservatives all agree this is a top priority issue. I think we're really there among the public, just not among officials. Then if we're if we're arguing over whether we're doing a tax credit or a voucher, I think we've won the main argument. And at that point, like you said, when you win one battle, what do you do? <laughs> then what do you fight over? Yeah, then maybe I'm having a big fight over, no, I just want this a tax credit. Progressives saying, no, no, we want this everyone to get a voucher. At least then we've all agreed on empowering the voter, and it's just how do we get there. And basically, then you have a situation where constituents have a voice. You also have a situation where a lot more people, and you were referring to this in the beginning, 
can actually consider running for office. Absolutely. Maine passed a bill, and you now have waiters and waitresses signing up to run for office. You know, there's funding there. It's all about alternate funding. We are also writing a people-powered playbook, which will be open source, and anyone will be able to access it. It basically shows, you know, how is the brat race won. I mean, it's not a history, but here's how you do targeting with online commercials that really work where you're paying two cents per time someone views it versus broadcast media. How do you beat the big money? How do you break that addiction to big money as a candidate? So the next few months, we're going to have it out there. Now, we're a nonprofit, so we can't, by law, take this to some you know state Republican party and say, hey, here's our great plan. It all has to be public. So we will release that. We're going to send it to all, all the state parties we can find, Democrat, Republican, any, Green, whatever, and just try to get out everywhere. But everyone will have a playbook then they can go to. Now, your opponent can go to it too. But if you're a small-dollar grassroots candidate, your opponent probably has some consultant who's making them sit in a room and raise money. So they aren't going to use the book because it requires some work. It tells you how to door-to-door. How do you make door-to-door effective? How do you make a note, leave the right note on a piece of literature even when the person's not home? How do you follow up in that home? I mean, it's complicated doing grassroots right, but you can do it without money if you really know what you're doing. I read somewhere that one of the ways that you, I mean, you, have this door-to-door a very effective strategy but also this like statistical micro-targeting and for you that came from a great interest in sports yeah i'm uh i think i'm one of the only republicans who like lives and dies college basketball it's really a weird mix (laughs) but uh i i had some breakthroughs in how you value college basketball players so everyone in new mexico's basketball team has a value rating of how many points a game is worth to on i have this value add basketball website just a hobby but sports illustrated and espn all have written me up on it so, uh, uh, but um, some people think I'm crazy because they'd see me crunching precinct numbers for 16 hours, and they say, "John, why don't you take a break?" And I say, oh, "I've been on break for an hour. I've been crunching my basketball numbers. You know, I'm still on spreadsheets." But so I do love that. There's a way to figure numbers out, and this is the problem most grassroots candidates have. They either love grassroots and some traditional working events, and and they hate these young techies who have their numbers and all. Or it's the opposite. It's all tech. It's all social media. They never talk to anyone. If you can marry those two, and that's what this book's for, you can beat big money, but you have to have both. You can't can't run the untargeted, I'm knocking on every door in this city, even though I don't know who the voters are or who votes. That just, you're never going to win that way. The name of your organization is Take Back Our Republic. We're talking about, as we've said, putting government back into the hands of citizens instead of big money. So tell me, when you go door to door, when you talk to people in Alabama, what are they actually talking about? Like what kind of problems in their lives are they trying to deal with that could be helped by better policy? This is the beauty of door-to-door. I wish everyone, I mean, I've knocked on doors in eight states in the last several years. (laughs) I mean, just before even going into this. People's concerns are so similar. I mean, whether it's in upstate New York, I actually knocked on doors in Wyoming. Believe it or not, there's some places the doors are close enough in Wyoming. I mean, it doesn't matter where in a country. You know, they're talking about their kids. They're talking about a school bus that goes down the road too quickly. <laughs> and, and the problem is, in this hyper-polling uh, environment, a lot of these elected officials, they don't see it because... The consultants deciding which questions to ask and then telling you, well, this is the issue that works. Well, yeah, but that's out of the 10 questions you asked. There's so many things that bond people that are common that would be good for a candidate to just know. It's generally it starts with their pets or their family or (laughs) some hang up at job or some transportation, some road issue or something like that. The thing we always get people on Walmarts is, by the way, it's taking you 10 minutes to get to the interstate exit. It'll take you 45 minutes once there are 10,000 cars in this two-lane road. <laughs> so just be ready for that. Those are the things you have to boil through to. And so the more you, you get candidates forced into talking to people, to their voters, you start to hear about these issues and not the fight that some billionaire in New York's having against a billionaire in Texas, both of which have picked one side of your race to give to. Yeah, so you've got to bring those issues home. They're all local. I think it's really important to talk about what participation in our political system means. And one of the problems is that there's so much cynicism about government itself. And frankly, a lot of that does come from the Republican Party, which since the Reagan era has explicitly said government is bad, we should have less of it, we should be suspicious of it. And yet we're if we're going to participate in our political system, we have to believe in it to some extent. We have to embrace it. We have to try to make it better. I mean, how do you 
reconcile that contradiction, which is in the conservative world? Well, I think that you can want greater participation and smaller government at the same time. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. One chapter in the uh, book, Taxation Only with Representation, that we published, it, it actually talks about the fact that if you look at government spending, it often tracks political contributing. So as you have spikes in political giving, you have spikes in government spending. And the argument is that's not because government suddenly decides they want to do a better job with education. It's because they have more and more donors that they're answerable to. And so you start overpaying for projects. You start building it up. So I think from a conservative perspective, these are completely consistent. I think getting higher participation in a lot of ways can be more people are paying attention to government and is my money going toward a better school uh, or a better road, or is this being handed out as a favor? Is someone getting a sweet deal who's a political donor? So I, I understand what you're saying, but I think actually, uh, actually these two are not mutually exclusive at all. In fact, it can go either way. People not paying attention to government can also let there be runaway government in other areas. So I, I think there's an angle both for progressives and conservatives. They'll see the issue differently, but higher involvement will help no matter what your ideology. So what brings you to New Mexico? We really want to get a nice chapter going here. We've actually had a chapter. It was based out in Rodoso, and uh, we've had a good meeting there. And, some good, and obviously want to spend a lot more time in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and getting around. Um, I do think the system here, when you look at the lack of enforcement for any of the campaign laws, is kind of one of the glaring problems in the country. Taken on a whole, it ranks high on the corruption list. We want to... I think South Dakota was number one, by the way. I think that's going to be knocked down several. That's the reason why we're in South Dakota. As a farming friend of mine says, he loves South Dakota because it's the only place he goes where there are more cows than people. So, you know, there's very small population. But I think a state like New Mexico, one, there's a corrupt system uh, in the way laws are not enforced and needing, needing an improvement. You can improve quickly. Sometimes a small state, you can improve population-wise. You can improve a lot quicker than some of the dynamics of fixing California or New York or something. New Mexico's has also always been interesting. I actually, um, drew a predictive map based on data back in 2000. I laughed because the only two states I missed were New Hampshire and New Mexico. I flipped them on who would go Gore and Bush, had everything else right. I think New Mexico is always so interesting because it's the first state that was not majority-majority, if you will, the diverse culture that you work with here. Uh, I think it's so interesting for testing so many just how does a democracy work. So we want New Mexico to be a very strong chapter for Take Back Our Republic. We've had a lot of people just sign up through the web and things, so there seems to be interest. So we're making the rounds and hope to build a strong chapter here. And you're open to people of all parties. We are. We say, you know, we are looking to educate people on conservative solutions for campaign finance reform. So we've had a good number of our chapter uh, heads are pretty conservative background because we want conservatives to understand they're welcome. We usually find progressives understand very quickly they feel at home with the campaign finance group. So, but yes, we certainly have members from all over the political arena, in addition to contributors. We, um, we actually had over 200 people donate the last half of December, which by some national standards is not big, but that for us was by far the biggest. And I can tell you, people on that list work all across the spectrum. And I'm talking three, five, ten dollar donors. I'm not talking some huge check writers here, but we've seen great diversity in our membership. John Pudner is founder and executive director of Take Back Our Republic. They're on the web at takeback.org. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the time. And you can find Take Back Our Republic on the web at takeback.org. There are chapters all over the country, and so if you are inclined, you can find out if there's one near you and you can join. The handbook that he mentioned during the podcast about how to do micro-targeting is not out yet, but I think it'll be out soon. So check back on takeback.org for more on that. I think it will contain some very important information for anyone on the political spectrum who wants to run a grassroots campaign, Republican and Democrat alike. We will link to Take Back Our Republic at radioactivism.net. Meanwhile, if you have any comments or questions, you can always email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.